Welcome to the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hartley, your host. Today, I'm joined by David Mitch, an economic historian and professor of economics at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. I'm so thrilled to have David on the podcast because he is an amazing economic historian who's done fantastic work on economic growth as well as the history of economic thought and, and knows all sorts of details about Milton Friedman in the University of Chicago that I had never heard before. Welcome, David. Thank you, John. Delighted to be here. Okay, David, so just to jump in here, um, where did you grow up originally, and how did you get interested in economics? You were uh, both uh, an undergraduate uh, and an economics PhD student at the University of Chicago. Um, what, what is your um, early life story that got you interested in economics, and in particular, um, economics at the University of Chicago? Okay, okay. Um, yeah. thank you for the question. Um, so I was born in Akron, Ohio. I actually spent the first six years of my life in New Zealand. My, my dad worked for BF Goodrich, a tire company. And so he was sent down there to work with um, um, a tire company down there. So I came back when I was six years old and then um, continued on then in a suburb of Akron, Ohio. So that's where I went to high school. Uh, I think what stimulated initially my interest in economics was my, he was an engineer, but he also um, got an MBA degree from Kent State University, was um, doing stuff on the stock market, doing charting, uh, chartism with, with stocks. Uh, but it was his copy of Samuelson's uh, economics book that sort of first got me interested in economics. So I had that interest. Um, that, that's then, the famous economics textbook that I think, uh, you know, at, at one point in its earlier stages, well, I think it's one, it's like the one of the original sort of principles of, of economics book that sort of succeeded, I guess, Alfred Marshall's sort of original principles mm -hmm. book. And then, uh, you know, his, Samuelson's book was obviously, uh, you know, succeeded by Greg Mankey's principles book. But I remember famously in some of Samuelson's earlier books, he projects like economic growth for the USSR to overtake economic or the GDP of the US. And, uh, and, and of, of course, that never happened. And it, it's interesting thinking about all these projections, you know, in the night talking about economic growth and, you know, uh, in, in economic history, you know, the, uh, for a while, I think in, in the 1980s, some thought that, you know, the GDP of Japan would eclipse that of, of the US. And, and, and for a long time, over the past couple of decades, people said the same about China, and, and, and we'll see what happens. Um, but so, so you grew up in Ohio, and then you went to the University of Chicago, and you spent um, over a decade there, um, both doing your undergrad and, and PhD studies. Um, what was the department like then, and who were your advisors, and what, what got you into economic history? Okay, so I started there in 1969, um, and actually, at the time, they had a very famous set of economic historians. Robert Fogel, who later won the Nobel Prize, was there. Um, Deirdre McCluskey was there at, at that time doing British economic history. Uh, and also the person that really got me interested in economic history was a Russian economic historian named Arkadius Kahan. And I actually remember my very first quarter, I think it was, and in the maroon, they used to uh, put in advertisements for seminars. And there was, by some fluke, there was something about the economic history seminar. Um, and so I went to that 
one of my classmates who also went, who has since gone on to do quite well, his name is Gary Hoover, who I think has a dormitory named after him. So we both showed up just as, as basically first year undergraduates at this economic history seminar. And it was a very, very stimulating, lively thing. So that sort of first got my interest in economic history. That was sort of my first exposure to it. Um, and I also remember in the general social science course that I took that we did hear Milton Friedman lecture as well as George Stigler. Uh, and actually one of the episodes I remember from this, this was 1969-70, and there was a lot of protests going on about the Vietnam War and in general about the establishment. Uh, and Friedman was often the target of those protests. So I remember a lecture that he gave and was disrupted by these by these protesters and they came in and they started going on this big rant about socialism and injustice and all the, the problems with the capitalist system. And they went on and on in this rant and the students in the audience started laughing and um, the, the, the person going on, said, how can you laugh at these things like poverty, injustice, racism, and so on? How can you do that? And Milton Friedman's response was, they're not laughing at any of those things. They're laughing at you. That's too funny. Uh, I, I remember you know, when I was a University of Chicago undergrad, I, I remember um, you know, well, Friedman had passed at that point, and, and also he had long left University of Chicago uh, you know, back in the 70s after he won the Nobel. But I remember you know, Bernie Sanders, Senator Bernie Sanders, coming to campus and protesting the the Milton Friedman Institute, or the now the what's known as the Becker Friedman Institute, which is really just a, a research institution and, and not even really much of a public policy uh, think tank. But I remember um, just this massive campus-wide uproar o over that. So I, I, uh, it's interesting that Milton Friedman was uh, certainly, uh, uh, I guess, a controversial figure on campus um, from from the beginning, uh, uh, from his early days. Um, that that's uh, fantastic and interesting too. Uh, thinking about these seminars, I, I know, you know the, the Chicago sort of seminars and workshops were sort of famous for having you know one professor that was usually sort of the king of these workshops. You know, it would be you know Harry Johnson and the international workshop, or Friedman and the you know, money macro workshop, and later Lucas running that. Or uh, it is is very um, I, I think uh, driven by one person. Whereas today, if you were to go to a lot of graduate student workshops. Maybe there there be a few faculty members in it, um, and and certainly uh, I, I think uh, a few could I think match you know uh, people like Friedman who would you know notoriously get everyone to read through every page and and uh, you know would cold call people uh, cold call students and and if a student said I, I don't know uh, I have to think about it you know he famously said well why don't we think about it now and and you know would try and um, you know get people to try and think on the spot. You recently published a, a very interesting paper in the journal Political Economy uh, titled A Year of Transition, Faculty Recruiting at Chicago in 1946. And it's, it's such a fascinating piece of you know, really the history of economic thought and, and the history of uh, University of Chicago's economics department um, in, in which you point out that Milton Friedman was actually almost not hired by the University of Chicago. I mean, it, it's crazy to think, I mean, what would... Uh, the, the University of Chicago's economics department have looked like without Friedman, you know, would, would it even still sort of uh, have, have been thought of sort of as its own school of thought and so forth? Like, can you explain a little bit more about um, how Milton Friedman was actually almost not hired to the University of Chicago's economics department? And, and actually, yeah. who, who the other run, uh, runner-up was, mm -hmm. who, 
who you know would have actually kind of gone in, in, in the totally stark opposite direction mm -hmm. uh, from uh, what what at least Milton Friedman's uh, economic and, and mm -hmm. political views were. Well, to set the context, so you mentioned 1946, and actually I start the article by pointing out how dismal things looked for the department. This was in January, February of 1946, uh, and Frank Knight wrote this letter to colleagues who were not there explaining what the misery was of the situation, which was, was Frank Knight of Nineteen Uncertainty right, and right. that old Chicago school. I mean, he right. was on the faculty since maybe right. the 1930s or, or right. something. Right, even like a little bit earlier. Yeah, but but he uh, pointed out that first of all, the really big star at the time, Jacob Viner, had just resigned to go to Princeton. Also, the longstanding chair of the department, Simeon Leland, had just resigned to take a position at Northwestern, and so then the issue is, what were they going to do? And they did have a number of faculty hiring spots. So the issue is sort of how to go about doing that, who would they hire, and so on. Uh, and so they had a long list of possible people. Um, and um, in, in deliberating on that, what has been noted by, by others be, before I sort of wrote about this is there, there was actually a quite diverse group within the department. So there was some longstanding, what could be called more institutionalist types, like John Neff would be one example. Uh, there was also a group associated with the Coles Foundation that was much more technical, uh, focusing on econometrics. Some of them actually had more, um, such as Jacob Marshak and Oscar Longa, had much more central planning orientations. Uh, and then there was a group- And, and they were famously, I, I guess they left campus because of a lo uh, big dispute with Milton Friedman and they went well, to Yale, yeah, right? Eventually, eventually. But at that point, they were still very active. But then there was also the group with Frank Knight, which included Frank Knight himself, uh, and then Henry Simons, Lloyd Mintz. Um, I'm thinking those were the, I think, the, I, actually, those were the, the kind of more prominent people. Uh, but then there were others like, like um, and one of the things my research uncovered is that they were clearly aligned with was, um, um, H. Greg Lewis, the famous labor economist, who was also in that camp. Uh, and so they each had their own sort of set of candidates, but they went through several rounds of deliberation. And in terms of the rankings, there was a cleared away first choice that all the groups agreed on. Uh, maybe Frank Knight a little bit less enthusiastically than others. And this was John Hicks, who uh, had risen to prominence was uh, at, at, at first the London School of Economics and then at Oxford, did subsequently win the Nobel Prize. So that was their, their sort of first target was John Hicks. He, the, the Hicksian demand and, and valuing capital, which is right. sort of putting into, you know, Keynes into more formalism. And, and uh, in, in, uh, uh, he was, I think, very, very much a, a big part of sort of popularizing mm -hmm. Keynesianism, mm -hmm. which I mean, would have been a totally other, you know, stark direction to take the, the department in. Right. But and, there were others, too. Who yeah. were, who and were, in fact, actually, as I recall, there were three slots they were trying to fill. And so they had three candidates that were sort of their first round choices. So the first was Hicks, who reasonably promptly turned down the offer, said he wasn't prepared to move. Then the second one was Albert Gale Hart, uh, who at the time was based at Columbia and was a somewhat recent um, graduate of the University of Chicago. His area was more in, in monetary theory and macroeconomics. Uh, and then he finally decided he was gonna stay at Columbia, did not really, wasn't prepared to, to make the move. And then the third choice, and this was really the one that the Frank Knight camp was pushing for as far and away their first choice was, was George Stigler. Uh, 
And so they did agree begrudgingly. The, the Coles Foundation camp agreed to go along with this. And so the department then um, wanted, to, wanted to make an offer for Stigler. Uh, but as is the case then, I'm, I'm currently department chair. I'm familiar with the hiring procedures. Uh, before the department could make an offer, they had to get, they had to get approval by the uh, central administration. Uh, and what happened is Stigler did have his required interview with somebody from the central administration. It was supposed to have been Robert Maynard Hutchins, who was sick that day. The, the uh, famous University of Chicago president who transformed right. the university and, and sort of got rid of D1 sports and, and famously you know, leveled the football right. field and, and built a massive library on top of it, uh, the Regenstein Library. And so he was not available. And then so then his replacement, the fellow's last name was Colwell, as I recall. I have to look in the article to get his first name. And he basically came from a theology background. But anyway, uh, he was not very impressed by Stigler. Stigler, in his memoir, said he thought that Caldwell thought he was too empirical. That wasn't the issue. That I found the memo that Caldwell wrote to Hutchins, just saying that he he was reasonably intelligent, uh, but he just was not sort of a top level level quality of somebody like Viner. That's uh, too funny. And I, I guess uh, Stigler would end up you know going to win the Nobel, and and uh, and, and I, I don't think Viner ever did. Uh, well, he he passed. He passed away earlier. Probably yeah. in the very early days. I think he passed away about 1970, and that was just uh, as the Nobel was getting started. So ah, right, have, right. Have, um, but I, I guess you know George Stigler was also sort of a, a, a bit of a controversial uh, um, professor on campus as well. I mean, he, he focused quite squarely on regulation um, and, and these sorts of public policy issues, even much more so than than Friedman, and, and I guess was um, a, a big part of that uh, sort of free free market camp. Uh, but I guess at some level too, he was very interested in how incentives shaped regulation too. It wasn't. But what, what is sort of ironic is the discussion, the sort of post mortem of what happened. Stigler was known for his wit and humor and all this, uh, but the way somebody described that interview is that in fact Stigler took more seriously what Caldwell was asking, where he, they thought that Caldwell was asking some questions tongue in cheek, and Stigler didn't quite grasp uh, that in terms of how things came across. But anyway, so that, that that possibility got got mixed. So that left sort of um, two remaining finalists, which were Milton Friedman, but the other one was Paul Samuelson. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Another stark opposite contrast from what you would associate to be the, the Chicago school, uh, or, you know, of sort of some, someone free market orientation. And so what happened is the, the Coles people were very strongly lobbying for... Um, for Samuelson, the Knight uh, uh, people were strongly lobbying for Friedman, and then there were people that were sort of in the middle, like T.W. Schultz and some others uh, that, that, that sort of had mixed views one way or the other. Uh, and they were both brought for interviews. Actually, what happened is Friedman made a very positive impression on everybody, including the administration, so they reasonably promptly made an offer to Friedman. Uh, Samuelson was brought in, uh, and I think in general, the department, even though there, were, there was opposition, was prepared to make him an offer one to do it. But as was Stigler, he made a very negative impression on some of the administrators. Uh, and then there was this fa famous line that um, I think Caldwell sent 
to Hutchins about what Hutchins made of, and, and, and Samuelson, by the way, was a University of Chicago graduate, undergraduate. He's undergraduate, right. He's undergraduate that's there. apparently where a lot of his uh, uh, passion for economics was you know, nurtured in an early age. I think he was maybe even, because he, grew, I think he grew up in Hyde Park too, I think maybe in his high school. I think Gary, Indiana, nearby. Right. But it, uh, yeah, close enough that I think he, you know, as a high school student or something like that, was going to seminars at the University of Chicago or, or, or something like that. And, I mean, also an eventual you know, Nobel Prize winner too, but um, certainly right. somebody that you'd heavily associate with, um, you know, Harvard and MIT and Cambridge that uh, you know have historically, I, I suppose, uh, more of a, uh, um, uh, uh, or at least not quite a, a free market orientation that uh, Chicago is famous for, to say the least. But, but anyway, Hutchins did make the interview with uh, with, with Samuelson. And then later he had to go out of town, and so that that preserves sort of the record of what Hutchins made of Samuelson. And Caldwell asked Hutchins to, to say what he commented. Hutchins in a telegram back said, "Well, my opinion of Samuelson hasn't changed. He's a vicious character with a high IQ." Huh. <laughs> I mean, this is just amazing. And so, actually, if I could finish, even though there was this negative reaction, the department still did succeed in making an offer to Samuelson. But then Samuelson decided not to accept it. Basically, at that point, stayed at MIT. And, and do you know why he didn't accept it, or, or not, not clear? Um, I, I, th I think there's been a separate track uh, writing about that. Some have written about that. And then there's a volume on MIT economics about some of the considerations. But I, I think part of it is, I, my, and they did try later on to also make him an offer uh, a few years, 47 and 48. Uh, and my, my sense is that he thought he had a really a good arrangement at, um, at MIT in terms of being able to control and build up the department. And I think he would have had some awareness. There would have been some resistance to what he would be trying to do at, at Chicago. That would, um, well, I mean, it's fascinating too, to think just, um, you know, part of how MIT and, and Chicago both, you know, it, it's, both as universities rose, um, you know, in, in uh, gained sort of dominance in the academic sphere was in part because unlike Harvard and many other older schools, uh, that they weren't um, plagued by anti-Semitism to the, the extent that uh, some of these other schools. And I, I think that had something to do with Paul Samuelson not getting hired by Harvard um, when he first went on the market after graduate school. Um, I think I guess like I'm, I'm curious, like just uh, you know from uh, Something that's interesting in economic history. How do you know all this? Like, I mean, what as an economic historian, um, and, and particularly one that's you know uh, that's written a paper and done a big project like this on understanding, you know, department uh, economics, department hiring and, and voting, and, and what was going on behind the scenes. Like, do economics departments keep records of these things? Like, I've never been on a hiring committee, and, and I've only been an economics graduate student, undergrad. But like, are, are all these sorts of decisions being, um, uh, you know, uh, logged and, and uh, you know, being archived and, and so forth? Well, they, they, they do keep records, and that's what I base this on. And uh, so I'm spending, you know, extensive time in uh, the University of Chicago archives and Department of Economics sort of has its own set of files there. It's kind of hit or miss what they actually keep and what, is, what they're required to keep. And it was sort of a fluke. Um, in 1946 that this particular vote, there actually was a, a record kept of the voting um, sort of by faculty member. And what's 
further makes it interesting the way they actually you you can do you can do votes in different ways about how you rank and or, or how you how you set up the the choice among candidates, but the way that this particular set of decisions was made was through what, what could be called a board account, where basically each of the faculty member voting, uh, they don't just vote yes or no or whatever, but depending on the number of candidates, then they give points according to what the preferences of the candidate. So you can either give the number one candidate a number one, or if there are five candidates, you get it a number five. But there's actually a measure of the intensity. So it's not just the number of votes, but it's actually the intensity of voting that counts in terms of the overall sum. Then, um, what one? I guess the board accounts one. You know, one famous way to sort of um, overcome uh, Arrow's impossibility theorem, or, or uh, I, I think you're. you're um, you when you do that, you relax one of the constraints. Um, but um, a, a way to get, I guess, optimal uh, uh, voting outcomes. But I'm I'm still just amazed that uh, you know, you could go to an economics department and they would give you these records. Uh, like I, I'm sure, like if I went to the you know, Stanford economics department and asked for the you know the tenure vote on on recent faculty on you know who voted for who, there's no way on earth that I would. Um, beginning, I'm, I'm not even sure well, in this day and age whether they track these or, or it's a voice vote or it's your point. You know, maybe um, some departments do, um, uh, you know, voting um, you know, by ballots versus others, you know, by hand or voice votes. Um, well, a lot of this depends actually on the archivist and the way they set up the records uh, and also the conditions under which the papers are donated, uh, the records are donated. Uh, Quite commonly, there are restrictions on when the files could be opened up. Uh, that was the case actually with T.W. Schultz's papers, who was chair for many years. And there were certain papers that had restrictions on uh, whether one could look at them or not. Uh, but the Department of Economics records going up to about 1960, there weren't those sorts of restrictions. Um, and there are other people's papers I've looked at, I won't mention particular names, where there wasn't the same sort of care taken by, I guess, both the donor and then the archivist. And so there's a lot of stuff in there, letters of recommendation and so on, letters about tenure and so on, that are really uh, pretty sensitive that one can look at, even, even make copies of. And, and so it's sort of hit or miss what one comes across in that regard. That, that's um, amazing. And, and uh, I mean, to your credit, um, you know, I'm sure you know, going through many, many um, archives uh, and, and having to go to many different sources is, is not an easy thing to do, uh, mm -hmm. to say the least. So my, my hat is off to you and, and uh, uncovering uh, the, this. Um, and, and these facts if I could just something. mention one other thing, part of the issue, uh, one has to like being in archives, and that's kind of you know sort of how I got into this line. And, and in fact, sort of person that really sort of got me interested in economic history was this faculty member there named Arcadius Kahan. And he had this, remember, study Carol down in Regenstein that was just sort of filled with all kinds of papers and documents. And that's when I saw that, that's kind of that that looked like something I sort of wanted to do. So I enjoy spending time in archives. But the thing is, often one finds stuff in unexpected places. So in the course of working on this, I look, for example, at the Office of the President's papers. And that's where a lot of this stuff, because there tends to be a paper trail up the chain of command through the administration. And that can often reveal stuff and wouldn't look, see if one just looked at the economics department as such. Well, that, that's fascinating. And, and 
this particular advisor of yours actually passed away uh, um, just around right. the time that you were graduating. Right, right. right. Wow, well, it's, right. it's unfortunate that uh, you know it's, it's, uh, life was uh, you know, cut short. And um, an amazing, um, just you know, too thinking about all these great economic historians like yourself that have gone through the University of Chicago. Uh, I, I know uh, you know other departments like um, in Stanford, for example, takes economic history along with Northwestern takes economic history very very seriously. And it's always great to to hear from um, an economic historian. Um, so I, I also want to pivot here to economic growth and some of the work that you've done. You've spent a lot of time, um, uh, aside from history of economic thought, I think you've spent even more time on thinking about economic growth. Um, and in particular, you have a theory about economic growth and the incentives for governments to promote economic growth and, and how they um, might be less well understood than people perhaps realize. Could you uh, elaborate and explain a little bit more about your theory on on, uh, on growth and, and the government's incentive to promote it? Right. And it is just a theory, so I'm not claiming this universally explains uh, everything. Um, but in a way, the starting point, um, one of the things I've been doing over the last several few decades, actually, my teaching is I even though I, I don't do research in it, I teach a course in Asian economic history. And one of the phrases I came across, this was first for 19th century Japan, but it actually goes back to ancient China. Uh, and um, one version of it is prosperous people, strong army. So the prosperous people, the prosperity part is sort of the economic growth component. And then the strong army is the other part, as with a lot of sort of Chinese, Japanese phrases, there's no verb there. So you have these two noun clauses, uh, rich people, strong army, and the, then there's sort of a connection between the two. But in Japan, when I first encountered this, this is in the 19th century, the connection was Japan wanted to bring up its prosperity so it could develop a stronger military. This is after it had been in, invaded by, by the Admiral Perry's gunboats and so on. And so they realized their technological inferiority and wanted to catch up. They realized to do that, they would have to promote economic growth. But as I started tracing this back, and I, it goes back really to, to um, ancient China, to, uh, 3400 BC, where this phrase originally go, goes. Uh, and it's, it's sort of ambiguous what the direction of causation is. Uh, but as you get into it, one can see that this is a common motive in a, in a, a variety of places and time periods. Uh, this perception by rulers that by developing economic growth, that's the best way to provide resources for developing their military, even more so than just sort of taxation systems and so on. Um, and, and one can find this theme, for example, in early modern, modern Europe, and this was something that actually Jacob Viner wrote a very good article, uh, and, the, and the, the, the two nouns he, he puts together are power and plenty. Uh, and actually, you find this phrase in Adam Smith, and there's been an interesting issue about how you interpret this. Uh, but Smith, by the way, even though people think of him as a free trader and opposed to government interventions, there are passages where he advocates and sees, sees, can see the reasons for things like the Navigation Acts. And there's a passage in the same chapter where he talks about the invisible hand promoting economic growth, where he says, well, maybe there should be Navigation Acts because it can help promote the defense, help promote the, the Navy, provide resources for the Navy. And then he says, because defense is more important than opulence, maybe the Navigation Acts aren't a bad thing. Uh, but I've, 
seen interpretations that he may be sarcastic, but again, it's a but he does acknowledge the importance of basically strong defense for ultimately the prosperity of the country uh, as laying the foundation for that. Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting because, you know, Adam Smith, he, he wrote a lot um, in many respects sort of against mercantilism, which uh, it was very much about uh, promoting uh, militaristic objectives uh, now, uh, through sort of economic means and, and you know, their approach is very different, like involving like hoarding gold and, and things of this nature, and and uh, you know avoiding trade and, and so forth, um, you know, with particular nations. But I, I guess like maybe Smith's point was that you know actually if your true goal is to promote you know militaristic objectives, then you know following sort of a, a, a somewhat uh, you know free market economy. Um, uh, some degree can can actually help promote those objectives uh, a bit better. It's it's that's a super interesting theory, and and I mean it's also interesting to think about um, just all other sort of theories of growth that had been talked a lot about in, in recent years, and I think in particular about narratives around uh, the government's role in in promoting uh, technology and te uh, in technological uh, growth. Like I think. In sort of the more popular economics press, you think about um, Miriam Mazzucato's work, uh, like the entrepreneurial state, uh, the value of everything. You, we see this um, there. You know the, these arguments that uh, things like, um, uh, for example, the uh, the internet and GPS uh, came about through DARPA it is you know a very stark contrast from I think the opening of Milton Friedman's Capitalism and Freedom in, in 1962, where you know, he sort of dismisses all the things that government has done and says, you know, well, who came up with, you know, the assembly line, you know, Henry Ford, and, and you know, gives a lot of other free market examples about um, how sort of private industry has really been responsible for so much technological um, development. Now, what you're saying is, is uh, really more about government incentives, not about how growth comes about per se. Um, but it's interesting um, to think about, you know, the um, not only, um, you know, why governments may want growth, um, but to what degree they, they can um, promote uh, technological development um, on top of sort of growth through uh, the means of, you know, spending tax, uh, you know, lower taxes and so forth, you know, the, the, I guess, which is the sort of the more Keynesian um, uh, route. Um, but the, the, this is all, um, you know, fascinating on all fronts. And, you know, every time I talk with you, I learned so many historical facts that I had no idea uh, about, and, and really fascinating to learn how Milton Friedman was almost not hired by the University of Chicago's economics department, and instead, you know, maybe John Hicks or, or uh, Paul Samuelson, uh, you know, could, could have joined the department instead, and, and could you know one imagine uh, how different of a character the department uh, of economics at the University of Chicago would have taken on, and, and perhaps you know the, the Chicago school. Um, as people uh, perceive it and, and have thought about it really since I think the 1980s and before that, um, you know, would have been you know, totally different um, had, uh, had Milton Friedman not ended up being that compromised candidate that everyone went with. And fascinating to talk about economic growth as well. It's, I think, always, or and for quite a while, it's been sort of the, the number one issue uh, in economics is just, uh, you know, trying to explain economic growth and understand it. Thanks so much, David, for coming on. It's been a real pleasure. No, thank you for, for the invitation. I've enjoyed it very much. Our guest today was David Mitch, 
an economic historian and professor at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. You've been listening to the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hartley, your host. Thanks so much for joining us. You give me free, 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 free